And her very first day, she had to sign not only the loyalty oath, but she had to sign a secrecy oath also. And because it was wartime, the penalty if she talked during war would have been death. Welcome to Foreign Policy. I'm Sharon Weinberger, Executive Editor for News, and you're listening to the ER. I'm in Washington today, and joining me in the studio are Liza Mundy and Foreign Policy Reporter Jenna McLaughlin. Liza is a senior fellow at New America, and she has written for The Washington Post, Atlantic, Politico, The New York Times, and The Guardian. Her most recent book, Code Girls, The Untold Story of the American Women Codebreakers of World War II, follows the story of the more than 10,000 young American women who served as codebreakers for the U.S. Army and the Navy during World War II. Jenna is foreign policy's intelligence reporter, focusing on the culture dynamics and events happening at the National Security Agency, the Central Intelligence Agency, and the other 15 members of the intelligence community. ER listeners, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at foreignpolicy.com. So in her new book, Liza takes us to a largely forgotten time, long before our current debates, when women were actually dominating in a very prestigious and secretive area of computer science. In Code Girls, she follows the lives of women who worked behind the scenes to decode messages sent by the Axis powers and intercepted by the United States allies during World War II. Recruited from all walks of life across the United States, from rural towns to college campuses, these quote-unquote Code Girls were as valuable to the U.S. war effort as their husbands, brothers, and fathers on the ground. At the end of the war, however, these women were sworn to, quote, never reveal the scope of their war work. That is, until Liza discovered a trove of documents that were recently declassified and spoke to some of the surviving women. Um, can you start off talking to us about the genesis of this book? Where did you get the idea from it? Where did you first hear about these women, which were largely unknown? Right. I had read a short declassified history of the Venona Project, which was the uh, secret project during the war to decode Russian messages, which we weren't supposed to be doing because they were our allies. But we did, and we continued doing it for decades after the war. And this particular declassified history mentioned that 90% of the people working on that project were women, and uh, and, and many of them were ex-school teachers. And that was incredibly interesting to me. So I went out to the cryptology museum that is attached to the NSA in Fort Meade, Maryland. It's our little version of Bletchley Park. And I interviewed a historian there, an NSA historian and a curator, and they laid out this much, much larger larger story of women being recruited during the war to break largely the German and Japanese codes. So I spent about an hour and a half listening to them lay out this story. And of course, I was immediately intrigued and just needed to figure out whether it was actually reportable, how much, you know, how much documentation there would be and how many, whether there were any living code breakers well, at that point. Well, that's interesting. Can you tell us, I mean, the, the museum's curators obviously knew about this story. Yeah. Some of it is because they're essentially working for the NSA. Um, so what was available? And were you worried that any of these women would still be alive and willing to talk to you? Sure. I wasn't, I wasn't certain about that at all. And I should say that the curator and the historian I were talking to were, are both women. And, uh, and so I think they had been waiting for somebody to come along Long, who was interested in the women's portion of this history. And they also had a small exhibit at the Cryptology Museum on, on women, uh, women's contribution during the war and after the war. Uh, and, and I was very concerned that I just had no idea. I knew the women would be in their early 90s at best. And and so it was really a, um, well, like any reporting effort, I, I just tried to cast nets on many fronts. And the NSA historian who was 
very interested in getting the story out. She methodically went back through all the emails she had ever gotten from families who who wrote the museum or the history office saying, you know, I think my mother might have done this work. Can you tell me anything about it? So she went back through all those emails. She contacted them all to see if it was okay if I would contact them. And I did. I contacted every family whose contact information she gave me. And one one of those families put me in touch with a living code breaker. So the first woman that I interviewed, um, the the family, their their mother had done this work and she was no longer alive. She had worked actually for the NSA after the war as well. But her best friend, they were both school teachers who came up from the South to work for um, the Army code-breaking effort. Her best friend was still alive. So I, uh, I visited her in her assisted living facility in Midlothian, Virginia. And between us, myself and her son coaxed her into telling the story. And she was very reluctant. Even all these decades some, later. All these decades later, because the women had all taken an oath of secrecy on their very first day. This woman in particular, Dot Braden, had taken the train from Lynchburg, Virginia, not even knowing what she had been hired to do. And her very first day, she had to sign not only the loyalty oath that all all public servants sign, but she had to sign a secrecy oath also. And because it was wartime, the penalty if she's talked during war would have been death. And... The veil of secrecy or the oath of secrecy had been lifted in the 80s or the 90s, but nobody had ever tracked these women down and told them that it was okay to finally talk. Yeah, how does that work? <laughs> I mean, at some point, you know, does the does the NSA issue sort of a decree saying, you know, this is no longer? How would the women even know that they could talk about right. it? Right. And, and, I mean, nobody, nobody tracked them down. They had all gotten letters immediately after the war saying, never, ever tell anybody what you did. And that had never been revoked. I, I don't know in other circumstances— what the NSA does. I, I should know, but uh, I, what had happened in this case is that eventually memoirs and histories about World War II code breaking just started being published. They started getting out. There was some information that was declassified in the, you know, 1970s, I think, uh, and then some other declassifications in the 80s. Uh, but again, Nobody went around and individually told these women who had retired into private life for the most part that it was okay to talk. And male naval officers like Joe Rochefort and other men who had stayed in the service and and understood that it was okay to talk, they had already started writing. I mean, they had already written memoirs. So the women, many of the women were aware by this point that that there are books out there. I mean, or, or the imitation game or something. You know, they, they were aware that the story of World War II code breaking was out there. But again, nobody had tracked them down. You know, their names had all changed because usually they joined up under their maiden names. They often got married during the war or immediately after the war. Uh, so with some of the women I interviewed, I was literally working from rosters and, and then trying to figure out through ancestry.com or other means, you know, what their married names would be and then try to find their phone numbers. So, so uh, the NSA, I guess, would have had to do that on every individual woman, and and n- nobody had There's done no that. There's no policy yeah, so, for that. Yeah, so and some of them were were reluctant to talk. Uh, some of them were eager to talk. Once I sort of got them to relax about it, I would say they were all eager to talk and 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 understandably eager to get credit finally for what they had done. And one of the women I interviewed. Uh, she had actually broken her wrist the night before, and I drove her to the emergency room and interviewed her in the emergency room. Uh, she said, "You know, I just hope to live long enough to see your book published." They, they really, uh, you Did know, she? at this, 
Yes, oh, she did. Great. Yeah. And at this late date, they, they would like to get some recognition. Well, let's take us back for a minute to the mechanics of the book. If I remember right, you started doing this research um, after Edward Snowden, after the big revelation. So on one hand, NSA was not it was, was not an authorized history, but they were also eager to sort of show another side of the NSA. Sure. And let, let me emphasize, this is not an authorized history. I mean, nobody, uh, nobody had to okay what I wrote. Uh, uh, and and but but certainly uh, the NSA. I mean, I joke in my talks like if you're the NSA, what would you rather have? One more story about Edward Snowden or a book about heroic female codebreakers? Uh, they they certainly were interested in getting the story out. But I would say that in general, our historians who are attached to federal agencies are a great resource. I've worked with these historians before at the U.S. Senate. Um, the FBI was uh, very helpful in getting out the story around uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. I mean, th- these historians attached to agencies are great because they are truly objective historians. They are, you know, committed to their institution, but also, I think, very clear-eyed about, I I found this with the Senate historian as well, you know, the good eras and the bad eras, like they know. Uh, So I, I would say that the NSA cooperated to the point that they could, although there's still information that is classified. And I had to work very hard to get a lot of the documents declassified. I had to first, I filed FOIAs. Uh, they had done 20 oral histories with women over the years that they had immediately classified, even though, even if they were done 10 years ago, they still classified them, which, you know, like why? And, and I had to file FOIAs. And then when that was obviously going to take too long, they, uh, I filed mandatory declassification reviews. Uh, in some cases, there are histories that were written not long after the war. There's a multi-volume history, and I managed to get an extra volume declassified. I think two volumes had been declassified. I got another one declassified, but there are untold other volumes that are still classified. So it wasn't like anybody was handing this to me on a silver platter, I can assure you. And and I think, you know, the, the larger story of intelligence that was born during the war, I mean, that's what's so interesting to me about the story also, is we didn't have any of today's intelligence agencies. I mean, zero. We didn't have the CIA. We didn't have the NSA during the war. And all of our current intelligence agencies were born out of, uh, well, many of them were born out of World War II intelligence buildup. And and the reason this is relevant to the documents is that in some cases, uh, some of these documents, there are more than one intelligence agency that claim proprietary, uh, I don't know if ownership is the right word, but in order to get them to declassified, get them not only does the right. NSA have to sign off, but probably the CIA does. I mean, they wouldn't even tell me what other agencies had a stake in this, but I assume that it was the CIA and or the FBI, um, you know, and or, well, Army intelligence also. So, uh, so it was... It was it was a two year effort to get documents declassified. Before I get to the um, the women code breakers themselves, in terms of FOIAs and getting documents you, that you wanted, was there anything that you really thought you needed that you couldn't get, or anything that still wasn't released? Or I guess it's sort of hard to know what you don't have. Yeah, it's hard to know what you don't have. Although I will say, it became clear to me. I, I talked about this multi volume set of histories, and uh, you know they have some redacted versions of some of the volumes at the National Archives at College Park. It's a very sort of scattered process in the sense that nobody 
really knows kind of what's out there. I would be at the National Archives at College Park looking through one of these redacted volumes, and I would be taking photos and sending them to the NSA and saying, okay, you know, this would be so useful for me to have, and how long will it take to get this declassified? And they didn't even necessarily know, like, the extent of the redaction, because uh, it probably happened 30 years ago, and it's there in the stack. So uh, they don't necessarily know... Um, what's out there either. And I'm sorry, what, what was your original question? I think about documents that you wanted to oh, have, yeah, that information that you yeah. just weren't able yeah. to get through the yeah. Freedom of Information uh, What I was going to say is that um, I did often find, when I, I spent three months at the National Archives at College Park looking through three massive paper-based uh, archival collections on wartime code breaking, and often I would find the memos and the histories that those... Uh, larger histories were based on, you know, like you would you, you would start to rep- see duplicative language. I would say, okay, here's the monthly memo. And I can see that that language went into this multi-volume history. Mm-hmm. So I read through so many memos that I did feel in the end, like skeptical that if whatever, however many subsequent volumes there are to this multi-volume history, I think I probably read the memos that, that they would have been based underlined. on. So I was actually surprised at how much it, information there was. I was surprised at how feasible it was to find paper documentation that absolutely corroborated the memories that the women shared with me, either about their lives in Washington or about the code-breaking work that they did, certain terms of art that they remembered. I found them everywhere in the paper archives, words like Shogoichi message or additive. Uh, I, I was amazed at how accurate their memories were. And so I didn't... F- yeah, there were there were certain code breaking efforts of the war, like the assassination of Admiral Yamamoto, that the paper record is very sketchy on because so, it's still classified. Or you know, it happened really fast. It was top secret. Portions of it were done out in the Pacific. Portions of it were done here in Washington. I would find oral histories where the women talked about working on it, knowing that it had happened, um, but like a a, a TikTok of who broke which aspect of the code and what happened in the Pacific and what happened here in D.C. Uh, You know, there's no like one perfect document out there. And I doubt that a perfect document was ever produced. But uh, there could be a naval archive somewhere that had, yeah, I mean, I could have really researched the book forever in order to answer some questions. So in some sense, there was more than I thought there would be. Mm-hmm. But certainly there were um, like key moments at, at during the war where I wished that there had been a little bit more. Well, let's talk about the women for a moment. How many of the code breakers were you able to track down? And what was your experience interviewing them both in terms of their ability to narrate and deta- their willingness to talk and their ability to remember details of what they did? So I interviewed more than 20 women in all. Uh, I found that one through the chain that I that I narrated. Uh, another woman I interviewed, Anne Cara Christie, came in during the war, and then she rose to be the first female deputy director of the NSA, and I interviewed her five times before she died in 2016. And the process of finding the other women— was so varied. A friend of mine went to a assisted living facility in Maine where her mother is. Uh, she's Wellesley, class of 43. And my friend mentioned at the dinner table the book that I was working on. And t- 
two of the women said, I did that work during the war. And she came back and she said, I've got three for you because they had a friend who lived nearby. So that was just a, a lucky thing that happened. Um, a, another woman I found by placing an ad, placing a little notice on the Facebook page of World War II magazine, and her son read it and she contacted me by email. Sometimes one woman would lead me to, you know, a friend who was still alive. And generally, there were a couple of them that I had to convince that it was okay to talk. But the other ones were pretty willing to do so, although it was still hard for them to utter certain terms because there were certain terms that they used, like Shogoichi message or overlapper, that they were told, like, never say this on the streets of Washington, never utter this word outside the code-breaking compound, because if somebody heard it, they would know that we are breaking codes in these compounds here in Washington, D.C. So even once they relaxed enough about talking, there were still certain words that they had not only not said in 70 or 75 years, but they had never said them outside the workplace. And what did those terms mean? Well, Shogoichi message is a is a message that means noon position. So this was one of the um, kinds of messages that the women would look for who were working on the Japanese code-breaking project. Um, a Japanese naval captain or the captain of a supply ship supplying the Japanese army would send a short message saying exactly where the ship was going to be at noon the next day or at noon a couple of days from now. It was not a very secure practice on the part of the Japanese because what better piece of information for an American submarine commander than to know exactly in the vast Pacific where a ship is going to be the next day. So they would look for Shogoichi messages announcing a noon position, and they would get that broken as fast as they could so that the intelligence could go out to a submarine commander. So, for example, the woman, in terms of how much these women could remember, uh, the woman who contacted me because of the little notice I place on the Facebook page. She remembered Shogoichi message. She remembered, she showed me mathematically how they recovered additives, which was, um, she rem- she remembered exactly how the Japanese naval fleet code worked. Uh, certain, certain words would be rendered as five-digit code groups, and then the Japanese would add another set of numbers onto that to encipher it. I mean, these, this was basically encryption. It was an early form of mathematical encryption. She remembered how she stripped out those additives. That was her job. She showed me how she did it mathematically, and she remembered that they would be, that there were certain terms or code groups they would look for, like a Shogoichi message. She remembered that the Japanese liked to, uh, break a message, like they would reverse the order of certain things. Maybe they would start it in the middle, and then the second half of the the beginning of the message would be like the second half. But they would always start it with a code group that meant begin message here. And that's another really insecure practice. So the women would look for that code group that meant begin message here. She remembered that a valid code group was always divisible by three. So that's the that's the level of detail that she was able to recall about her work. And then when I went to the National Archives and looked through the connections, all of that was verified. And I found the memos that the additive room was getting from their commander, urging them to recover more additives than last month because an action was about to occur in the Pacific. Um, I found her name. I, I found her address when she first came to Washington. It confirmed that she had lived with a bunch of Wellesley women. She came from Smith. It was, you know, some of the women had a good memory of the code-breaking process, Some had a better memory of their lives, but they all had remarkably clear uh, memories. And I I remember reading a psychological paper that there's something called a reminiscence bump that we tend to remember like our first job out of college really vividly, that there's something in in our early 20s. And when I read that, I thought... 
I actually remember my first job out of college very well. I you know remember what I did and where it was, and and I and and for for these women, it was their first job out of college, except for school teaching in some cases for a year or so. Uh, but anyway, this is a long way of saying that I was. Of course, they didn't remember everything, but um, I was surprised at what they did remember. I was surprised at how accurate it was and that it was, in almost every case, possible to verify it with a paper record. The code breakers were, most of them were women. And so when we sort of fast forward several decades, I mean, Jenna, you've spent a lot of time interviewing people at the NSA and in cybersecurity. I know it's sort of, it's there certainly are women represented at the NSA and in cybersecurity, but is it fair to say this is still a very heavily male-dominated area? I think that that's certainly fair to say. And I mean, the idea of needing to bring women and people of color and people with disabilities is still a problem that the, in the intelligence communities face. I mean, I had an article about the CIA facing exactly that problem a couple months ago. I'm sure that that's been a tough hurdle to face, and it's dependent on which people are in power. Um, the director matters a lot. Um, but I don't, I don't think that we're past that hurdle. Well, so what happened to these women after the war? Um, obviously, they went in different directions. There were some who stayed on into what became the NSA, but that was the minority, right? Right. It was definitely a minority. So after the war, well, during the war, there were two big code-breaking operations here in Washington, and women dominated both of them. One was run by the U.S. Army, and those women were mostly civilians. They mostly stayed civilians. There were some whacks, but they were mostly civilian. Most of them were school teachers. And then the Navy... The Navy required its women, for the most part, to go into the Navy. So they became waves. Those women became waves. And the, the reason I make that point is that some of the women were able to use the GI Bill. The Navy women, in some cases, used the GI Bill to get graduate degrees, although some of them applied for, say, architecture school and were told that there were no places available for women, even though they had served their country. Um, so some of the women got shut out of their of their careers. But um but others were able to get PhDs and, and become professors or go into the workforce. For the most part, the women left the service, left after the war because they were told to. They were told to make room for incoming men. And this was true in the defense industry, this the intelligence industry, because the OSS had a lot of women also. So they were shooed out of their positions. But there was a core group of really talented women who stayed on with what would become the NSA. It was called the Armed, it's called the Army Security Agency, and then the Armed Forces Security Agency, and then the NSA. And I don't know. It might have been 40. Uh, it might have been more. I mean, a lot of the women who worked Venona, uh, that Russian project, for decades and decades had come out of World War II. But those women, for the most part, and then there was a cohort that rose very high at NSA. And in fact, I was told that among the first super grades, like the top civilian rating, uh, that that like the first four or five were women, or among the first group were women who came out of the war. Anne Cara Christie, a woman named Polly Budabach, uh, Juanita Moody, they... They, for the most part, devoted themselves to this profession and didn't get married and didn't have children because I think for a number of reasons, if you had children and you were working at any job, you were expected to leave for the most part. Uh, if you were working intelligence, I think even to be married was potentially problematic during that period. So, for example, like the women working the Soviet system, Venona, they just were friends with each other. They had, they had, they were, they sometimes they lived in an apartment together. They were godmothers to each other's nieces and nephews. They were just a really tight uh, social group of mostly single women. Uh, and I think 
that group of women actually rose very high at NSA, but there was not an effort in the 50s and 60s to bring on the next generation. So they were like a cohort without a successor cohort. And, and I even saw some oral histories with some of those early women who then would kind of run up against women who came in during the 70s. And there were some lawsuits filed. There were some equal opportunity lawsuits filed and discrimination lawsuits filed. And I don't think those women who were advocating in the 70s necessarily found a lot of common cause with the early World War II, with the World War II women. They didn't see each other as natural allies. The World War II women were really of a different generation. I found some reference to this in oral histories. That That's they, interesting. Yeah. So what, how, yeah. I, I, I kind of get it, but how did they come at it differently? I don't know. I found uh, there was an oral history of an important early woman named Wilma Berryman. And she came in even before the war. Uh, she worked with Anne Cara Christie during the war, and they broke an important Japanese radio code system that provided incredibly important intelligence about the location of the Japanese army. And she continued working for NSA kind of on and off after the war. She would get married and stop working, but then if her, her, several of her husbands died, and she would be brought back into the fold. But then she married uh, somebody. He was maybe an ambassador or something, and his career required a lot of energy entertaining. So she left. So she was of kind of a different generation psychologically. Like she ultimately believed that if her husband's career required her to do a lot of entertaining, that she would just leave her job. Uh, and and she, re- she recalled in an oral history running up against um, a, a more kind of feminist, younger employee who said to her, well, you got yours and now you aren't helping us. Uh, so I don't know. She might have been, um, she might have been I don't know that all the women coming out of the war felt that way. Maybe some of them did find common cause with the subsequent generations of women. Uh, But I think that there was like a skipped generation. You know, there were women who came in in the 40s, and then there were probably some women who came in in the 70s and 80s. But there wasn't— 50s and 60s. Yeah, the huge huge buildup of the intelligence community. And I'll also say that I I mentioned— the two f- school teacher friends, the the one whose family I contacted, and she's no longer alive. Her name was Ruth Weston, and she was a school teacher from Mississippi. And her great friend in Richmond, who's still alive, who I interviewed, they were very close during the war. But Ruth kept working for the NSA after the war. She was a mathematician. She was obviously very, very good. I saw her personnel file. She received awards. I don't know what exactly she was doing during the 50s, but probably working Cold War systems. But there's a handwritten note in her personnel file resigning when she gets pregnant for the first time, because it essentially says, I'm resigning my position as as a mathematician for the NSA, because I'm expected to be home with my baby. And I think that really says it all, that in the 50s, if you did have children, women were expected to be at home with their babies. So we lost, you know, here's one incredibly talented female mathematician who at that point had probably 10, almost 10 years of experience breaking, you know, and making communication systems. And she resigned as a result of just becoming pregnant and having no support system. Uh, so... Again, I think that during the 50s and 60s, we lost most of this talent. We kept a a small cohort that were willing to just completely dedicate themselves to intelligence work. And And I've read oral histories also of CIA, you know, OSS CIA women that are really interesting, you know, about the sacrifices that those women had to make in terms of, um, 
homes and families if they wanted to work in intelligence work in the 50s and 60s. What's so interesting about the story, I mean, you talk about how these women were recruited, sometimes with sort of, you know, good-looking men mm-hmm. to entice them in, but these were jobs that the women also wanted. They, It was an exciting opportunity for them. They wanted to do this. Yeah, that's the great irony, is that the military in recruiting them was really fo- focused on their romantic lives, and um, the, the Army in particular deliberately set out to recruit Southern school teachers because they were college-educated women. The only job you could you could count on as a college graduate, if you were a woman, was teaching school. So the Army sent its handsomest young officers to hotels and post office throughout out the South, specifically recruiting school teachers with the idea that they would lure them to Washington with the hope of marrying a similarly good-looking man. And I found oral histories where the intelligence officers congratulated themselves on this strategy for recruiting young women. But in fact, just as you say, the school teachers were making about $900 a year teaching school. It was an incredibly demanding job. They could make $1,440 working for the federal government from the War Department, breaking codes. Uh, so they were they were taking this job because of the money, because they wanted to help the war effort, and because they wanted to move to Washington and live on their own or live with friends and, and, and not because they wanted to get married or find romance. You've talked about the women's reaction to this book that finally, you know, their story gets to be told. Um, what has been the, has the NSA had a reaction? I mean, they don't come out with an official reaction, but do you think they're, are they pleased with the book's publication that it shows a different side of their history? I would, I would imagine so. Yes. Yes. And again, nobody authorized this book. I, 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 I did not set out to please the NSA in, 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 in writing it, I do. I am grateful to the historians and the curators who would help me find documents. Uh, uh, but I, I, I can only imagine that to the extent that they think about this at all. And I'm sure that the vast, that you know, 98 percent of the NSA maybe doesn't even know that it's been published. But uh, the who knows? But the. Um, I am told that James Clapper has it on his nightstand. Uh, and well, he actually said that in, in an interview, uh, because his dad did this work and, um, and works with a lot of people in my book. So, so maybe more people at the NSA know about it than, than I necessarily realize. But I would think that those who are interested in their own history and the history of the agency are bound to be pleased. And I know that the women historians are pleased that this story has gotten out. The other interesting thing to me is I've, I've given a lot of talks in this area, in Washington and in Arlington, where I live, and always in the audience, there are people whose mothers did this work. And I've heard from people in the intelligence community whose mothers did this work. And boy, I've come, my, my husband has started to say, like, whose mother didn't do this work? Uh, I, I've, I've come to understand that our intelligence community was... Um, you know, that we have, we definitely have second and third generation intelligence officers and, uh, and, and many more fan, local, just many more current intelligence employees than I would have ever imagined do have mothers who did this work. I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, it was how many women in some? It was more than 10,000 women. 10, yeah. And a lot of them settled in this area. You know, they almost all came from elsewhere, either from, you know, board, uh, women's colleges in the Northeast or from little towns in the South and the Midwest or California. And of the ones I interviewed, none of them went back to their hometowns, and a lot of them settled in this area. And maybe they retired somewhere else, but I, I would imagine that a lot of their kids grew up in this area and did end up going into the business. And do they have 
I don't know if it was something you asked them, any current thoughts on the NSA or is that do they kind of think about what they did in terms of evolving into the Cold War or if they left it behind, they left it behind? Well, I think that, you know, obviously the women who stayed with the NSA, that's what they were working. They were working Cold War systems. They were working East German, Cuban, Chinese, Soviet systems during the Cold War. But the the women who retired into private life, you know, I don't even think that they realized that it did become the NSA. I, I, these are women in their early 90s who often are living in assisted living facilities. They do follow the news, but I don't think that anybody had spelled it out for them that 70 years later, the work that they did has evolved into the NSA. But what's amazing is the women still stay in touch, yeah. whether, you know, now through Facebook, but you've talked about even before they had sort of a, not a chain letter, but they had a way of staying in touch. Yeah. One of the group, one of the groups of women did have a chain letter. These were all enlisted women in the Navy and they all had very diverse background. Most of them worked the Japanese naval code system and they became best friends living in the barracks. The, the, Navy code-breaking operation was located in northwest Washington on a former the property of a former girls' school. It's now the Department of Homeland Security. So these these edifices live on in our intelligence community and national security community. Uh, but anyway, that that group of women became very close. There were barracks up in that neighborhood. They lived there. They ate together. They worked together. And so after the war, they were all lonely and isolated. You know, raising babies, living in little apartments. They didn't have any appliances after the war because all our factories had been churning out tanks and bombers. So they were wringing out bedsheets and diapers in bathtubs after the war and, and, and really lonely. So this particular group started something I had never heard of called a round robin letter, which uh, in which case I, I write a letter just talking about my life and my day and I'll send it to the next woman and she'll write a similar letter and she'll send both of those letters to the third person who'll write her own and she'll send all three to to the next person. So it'll travel all the way around the group as it gets thicker and thicker back to me. I'll take out my old letter and put in a new one and send it around. And those women kept that round robin letter going uh, for the rest of their lives. One of them is left. When I started my interviewing, there were two of them who were still alive and they were still writing letters back and forth to each other every couple of days. And so the range of ages of the women you spoke with went from about what to about what? <laughs> from, a youthful, from a youthful 91 wow. <laughs> to a, you know, somewhat less youthful 95. Uh, and now, you know, it, now it's been two or three years later. So um, a couple of them didn't survive, you know, to see the book be published, but most of them have and have written me nice letters. Uh, so they're in their mid to late 90s. Wow. Yeah. But apparently still many of them doing right. well. Right. Doing well. I mean, my central character Dot Braden is um, is lively enough that I we, she, we, they had a big book party. She signed probably seventy five books. Uh, I came down for the book party. I didn't go to the after party, but she went to the after party. So she's she's reveling in uh, you know finally getting some credit for for what she did. Yeah. So they're you know a fragile still obviously, but a very hearty and high spirited group of women. There was one woman I interviewed who liked to meet me in downtown D.C. at the Cosmos Club over Bloody Marys. And she would take, she would take, I know I want to be just like that. And she would take public transportation from her assisted living facility to get there. And when the metro broke down one day, she got out of the metro station at a part of town she'd never been in and she just stood in line for the bus in order to, in order to meet me. And uh, so it was easy for me to understand how this was a generation of women who would have just jumped on the train and come to Washington and... 
We talked about that after the war, that most of these women were pushed out. Um, I guess it goes without saying, but these were, at that point, women who had a lot of technical experience in an area. Do you think it set back some of our abilities uh, by a few years by suddenly losing these, you know, some 10,000 women doing this work? I mean, someone had to relearn it. Yeah, exactly. Had to relearn it. It must have set back our abilities. But it's not something that anyone really considered, right. I guess. Right. Just an immediate drain uh, of, of, of talent. It's, it's mind-boggling, actually, now that you say that. I mean, women who were, you know, not just breaking codes, but they were running uh, information systems. You know, they were they, – they were, I mean, they had – well, they had big – I guess in some, some of the units would have become obsolete instantly. I mean, there were big information units that would have provided the codebreakers with any information they needed on names of Japanese commercial ships. Or, you know, they were like the Wikipedia of the code-breaking operation. So suddenly you wouldn't need that anymore. You wouldn't need to know the names of Japanese supply ships. Uh, but the – yeah, the, the the expertise that they had developed in in penetrating enemy communication systems, even if we didn't need to read the Japanese anymore after the war, uh, we certainly would immediately start applying this to other message systems. Great. Well, thank you. Again, the title of Liza's book is Code Girls, The Untold Story of the American Women Codebreakers of World War II. Thank you for joining us. And ER listeners, again, we love hearing from you. If you have episode ideas or comments, you can email us at erpodcast at forumpolicy.com. Thanks, Liza. Thanks, Jenna. You've been listening to Foreign Policy's The ER Podcast. I'm Sharon Weinberger, and I've been your host. The program is produced by Katie Gardner and Brandon Martini. For more information about FP and to subscribe to The ER and our Global Thinkers and Backstory podcasts, please visit foreignpolicy.com, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you very much for joining us.